podcasting world welcome back to another episode of the core consult rx podcast and today cole and i are joined by our new buddy dr richard harris uh, who is a farm d md two doctorate's degrees so making us all mm. look really bad over here but that's yes. okay we'll get over it and uh, he's also <laughs> the founder and the host of um, his own podcast as well so um, we were happy to have him on the show his podcast is called strive for great health podcast and uh, so we'll get to talk to him a little bit about that as well but dr harris how's it going man thanks for coming on oh thanks for having me guys i really appreciate it and uh i'll tell you this i love my farm d's uh when people ask me what was harder farm school or med school i tell them pharmacy school wasn't even close really so yeah yeah it wasn't even close pharmacy school is way harder than medical school you think so i i feel like Maybe maybe because you already went through all the uh, the farm stuff, maybe that's what made it a little bit better. But I cannot imagine med school being easier than farm school. But I'll take you. You're the one. You're the one with the experience. We wouldn't know. Yeah. You know, there is. Yeah, I'm telling you, I'm not. I'm not lying about that. Uh, It's just there was a lot more pressure in pharmacy school. It was a little bit more intense where I went when I went to UT, and the hardest class I ever took was pharmacokinetics. Yeah. Yeah, that class is awful. I hear you on that one. Um, yep. <laughs> so, so you went through um, pharmacy school first, and then did you immediately turn around and go into med school? Or yeah, so I applied for med school my fourth year, uh, P four year, and. I took a year off because I actually wanted to know what it felt like to make money because <laughs> I knew that I, I was going to be in school and then, you know, three to seven years for residency. So I wanted to take a break, but I'm glad I did. I worked at uh, MD Anderson as a chemo pharmacist. That was a really cool, really unique learning experience and uh, got to meet a lot of great people. So I'm really happy I took that break in between. Yeah, you're definitely not the only person I've known to get near the end of their pharmacy school career and decide to do something different. Um, Someone I knew recently decided to go to PA school. They're currently in PA school now. My old roommate ended up going to um, med school afterwards. So fourth year, you're there. What makes you decide, hmm, I want to, you know, kill myself for another three to seven years (laughs) by going to med school? Yeah, so actually I decided a P1 year. Oh, nice. That I was going to go to med school. Yeah. So a little background. I came into college as a physics major, wanted to do biomedical physics, thought I wanted to make prosthetics, Uh, realized I love. I'm out. I'm out. Can't do this. So after that, I uh, switched into biochem, thought I wanted to do research, did bench research for two years. Didn't like it. Way too tedious. It just wasn't for me. And so I was a junior or about to, yeah, I was a junior at that time, about to enter my senior year, graduate early. And I said, um, I have no idea what I want to do. And I worked in the dean of the pharmacy's lab and he said, okay, I think you'd be a good pharmacy student. Why don't you just come to pharmacy school? I literally had no idea what a pharmacist <laughs> did. No clue. Never had any exposure to pharmacy. So I got into pharmacy school within the first two months. I loved what I was learning. I loved all the physiology. I loved learning about medications. I'd always been interested in supplements, uh, that was herbals. That was always something I was passionate about. And then that after that first semester, I said, I want to go to medical school. 
but I'm 21, I'm in Austin, I'm having the time of my life and I'm loving what I'm learning and I never quit anything. So I said, if I quit this, they're gonna ask me on my medical school interviews, well, why'd you quit pharmacy school? We think you're just gonna quit medical school. So I, I stuck it out and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. A lot of people ask me, would you do the same thing again? And I say, absolutely. In a, in a heartbeat, I would do the same path again because you look at things differently. Like I understand diagnostics, but I also understand the medications and how they interact and the physiology behind the medications. So when I'm thinking about a med, I'm thinking about receptors and like what's happening at the physiological level, what's the downstream effects, what's the upstream effects. And not a lot of physicians think that way. Yeah, that's interesting. And I know for me, like, cause I teach, you know, pharmacology, pharmacotherapy for PA school. And I know one of the big things that I kind of realize. I mean, I obviously knew this ahead of time, but when I really saw it was how much time is spent doing during like the, you know, the didactic year, especially like in PA school, you know, it's focused so heavily on the diagnostics and then pharmacology, pharmacotherapy is kind of like here, two weeks for infectious disease. Okay. Next subject. And it's like, Holy cow, mm -hmm. man. Like, in, I mean, I, I think the whole farm DMD thing, I mean, I would obviously besides adding a whole ton of school to your life <laughs> and money um, and money, but that's like, you're like a super clinician now. Like that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. You should wear a cape. Yeah. Yeah, I have before. I, I dressed up as Spider-Man one time for <laughs> Halloween and walked around the hospital that way. But, you know, it was really interesting because everyone says, you know, that first year as an intern is a terrible year, right? I came in there and from day one, attendings were like, you're a pharmacist? I was like, yeah. Like, okay, uh, well, what should I do about this patient, this patient, that patient? I was like the official pharmacy consult for the entire hospital because we didn't have any clinical PharmDs. So from day mm -hmm. one, I had the trust of the attendings, even to the point where I was running teams basically my first year, which is unheard of. The upper levels were like, oh, Richard's on my team? Okay, and they would just peace out <laughs> and then I would run everything because I'd already had so much of that training and knowledge from pharmacy school. So it definitely helped out. And I've been lucky enough to meet and talk with other PharmD MDs. And they tell me the same thing. Yeah, other people have told them that they're the best docs that they've ever been to just because of the mindset and the training that we have in the way that we look at and approach disease. Yeah, that's, that's definitely awesome. So what, what is your specialty now? Like what kind of practice setting are you currently working on? Yeah, so I do both holistic and allopathic medicine. So I'm naturopathic and, and I'm allopathic. So allopathic, I work in the hospital a couple times a month doing internal medicine. That's what I was trained to do. So, you know, people come into the hospital and need to be admitted. They come see me and then, you know, I see everything, strokes, diabetes, you know, high blood pressure, all everything that comes in the hospital. And so that, that's what I do you know, about a third of my time. And then the rest of the time I'm working on different holistic medicines. So I have an online lifestyle and functional medicine practice where my goal is to help people get off medications. And so I'll tell people this, you know, when they ask me, oh, why'd you do that? So now every time I walk in the hospital, I see people younger than me. I'm 37. I see people early thirties, diabetes with strokes, heart attacks, and on dialysis. And I'm like, this is insane. Like I never saw this 10 years ago, never. It was so rare. And now I'm seeing all the time. I'm like, this is a travesty. Like it almost makes me want to cry every time I see it because I'm like, this person is so 
feeding them. And not just them thinking about the impact on all their family members, their friends dealing with all this disease and disability. And I was like, there has to be a better way. And I can't just keep working in the hospital when I know there's a better way. And that's why I left to do more of the holistic medicine to help people prevent disease and reverse disease. Cause that's really where my passion is. I'm always a, a, been a prevention type of guy, you know, and for me that started in genetics in college, you know, you do the assignment like everybody else where you have to do your family tree. <laughs> right. And then I did my family tree and I was like, Oh my God, there's like every disease underneath the sun <laughs> like between my parents and my grandparents. So I was like, this is bad. Like I need to figure out what not to do and what to do to prevent this. And so that's how I really got interested in prevention. And that's what, uh, really my passion is because, you know, I know most of the things that we're struggling with are preventable diseases through lifestyle medicine. So when you're looking at an algorithm for uh, treatment of diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and right at the front is lifestyle modification, where I'm sure you've seen in school, it's usually like, yep, you know, three months of lifestyle modification. Now let's move on to the drugs. So that's where you're sticking with, like you're hitting it hard, right? A lot harder than probably most clinicians, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you, yeah, you look at the guidelines, they're always step one, lifestyle medicine. Well, how come no physician really knows what lifestyle medicine is? They tell you eat, uh, you know, eat less and exercise more. Right. That advice has never helped anybody. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. In principle, it's sound, but people need more details. Like, okay, what do I eat? How often do I eat? When should I eat this? When should I avoid this? What type of exercise? When should I exercise? How long should I exercise? You know, there's a lot more that goes into it. And that's just, you know, a drop in the bucket of everything that actually goes into lifestyle medicine. I tell people it's like this. It's like you're at the bank, right? And you're making deposits and withdrawals. And if your lifestyle medicine is making sure that we make more deposits than withdrawals, and most people are sitting there constantly withdrawing from their health savings account, you know, literally their bodies, and they're not making enough deposits. And so that's what I do is try to tip that balance in the favor of, hey, I want you to make three times as many deposits as withdrawals. It's not about being perfect. It's not about being a robot. You know, I tell people it's intention, not perfection, but you need to make sure on a daily basis that your, your balance is positive or health promoting behavior during that day than health subtracting behavior. Yeah. And when you talk to, or at least when I talk to providers, usually if, when we're talking about lifestyle modifications and things, they'll usually say, well, you know, we definitely hit on that, but I don't have time to get into the weeds on that, right? So I don't have time to talk individualized diets and exercise regimens and, well, you know, this didn't work for this patient, so we got to, you know, tweak yours a little bit. Um, so do you find that you have that time because that's where your focus is or do you utilize, mm -hmm. you know, others like dietitians or um, PTOT, that sort of thing to, to supplement your visits as well? Sure. So I definitely utilize other people. That's first and foremost. I'm a huge collaborative model person because the more times someone hears something, the more likely it is to stick. You know, if I tell them they need to work on their diet and the nutritionist tells them and their PT tells them, and their OT tells them, all right, now they're all of a sudden like, oh man, four people told me the same thing. I probably should work on this. You know, so I'm huge into that collaborative model. But at the same time, I, I'm a kind of person I don't like knowledge deficit. So if I'm going to talk to somebody about anything, I'm going to go and I'm going to read and I'm going to do studies. And 
it's kind of funny. Uh, I, I always ask people, you know, or, or people always ask me, what should I look for in a physician? I'm like, the first thing you should do when you go see any physician and who's in family practice or, or internal medicine, ask them when the last time they read a clinical trial is. <laughs> right. That's number one. Cause most of my colleagues have not read a single clinical trial since they finished school. And that's just sad. And then the second question I tell them is ask them when they read a clinical trial that didn't involve a drug. And if it's not recent for either one of those questions, find a new doctor. <laughs> I might be and, looking you know, for a while. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. But unfortunately, you would be looking for a while, but you can find them. They're out there. And uh, so when I put this into practice, that's why I left the conventional practice and started my own thing on the side. So I work part time in the hospital, but then I set up this whole program that allows me to have the time to talk to people about this. I have all And then we meet one-on-one -on -one to really finalize and customize that plan. Because unfortunately, it's really hard to be healthy today. There's so many things out there that we've normalized that degrade from our health. And especially here in the U.S., which does a terrible job of protecting consumers from toxins and you know food additives that are poison and, and a lot of these other things. They do a terrible job of promoting lifestyle health, too. You know, we do a great job of promoting drugs for everyone, but as you guys know, your average 65 year olds on 12 to 16 medications. And I've never heard someone on 16 medications say, man, I'm taking all 16 of these and I feel fantastic. <laughs> I, uh, I want to take more. <laughs> yeah. Give me some more doc. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Give me more meds. Yeah, no, no one says that. They're always like, how can I get off all of these meds? Or you'll see people, I hear this all the time. People are so frustrated. They're taking all their meds understand why I keep getting sick. I'm taking all my meds. And then I'll ask them, okay, well, what are you eating? They're like, well, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> I hear that all the time. I, this is, this is a funny story for us, but a sad story. <laughs> I was talking to a, a pharmacist who does functional medicine and she got a client who had, um, newly diagnosed with Crohn's disease and they wanted to put this, this person on biologicals. And she said, well, wait a minute, before we do that, uh, what about, you know, food, nutrition, what do I eat? Does that matter? And the GI specialist told her, no, it doesn't matter. Eat whatever you want to. And this is a specialist in this area who's treating people with this disease and telling them that nutrition doesn't matter for their disease state. And that's where we are in a lot of places uh, in this country, unfortunately, with conventional medicine, where there's a whole bunch of data that shows that what you eat, your nutritional status matters. So most of our listeners are um, healthcare providers. They're probably seeing patients. So what do you say to them uh, who, who might say what I mentioned before? Like, I don't feel like I have time to, to really talk through nutrition and diet to people, or I don't feel like my knowledge base is um, broad enough to really go in depth on those sorts of things. What can they do to improve their knowledge and, um, mm -hmm. What can they do to, you know, either improve their efficiency at delivering that knowledge or who can they use to give that knowledge better? Yeah, so I, I'll always tell people, you know, find a good dietitian in the area who is giving good nutritional advice because they're out there. Or you can send them to like a functional medicine provider. You know, people So like what I tell people is for me, I'm not trying to replace your primary care doc. I'm not. I'm trying to augment what your primary care doc does. Uh, 
because I'm not doing screenings and things like that. I'm, I'm more focused on disease prevention, disease management from a holistic perspective. And we can work together. Allopathic and allopathic medicine can work together. I think a lot of times people think that they're on opposite ends of the spectrum and they don't get along. I'm like, no, that's why I work in both because there's a role for both. You know, too many times we're too binary and, you know, we're zero one and there's nothing in between. Well, there's actually an infinite <laughs> amount of numbers in between, right? So that's what I would say. Number one is find someone that you can work with in a collaborative model and you can take the time to read. You know, there's like the Institute of Functional Medicine, the Association of Lifestyle Medicine. There are groups out there that are putting this information out there. A lot of them will even have handouts that you can just give to people right in your office, just say, here, read this. Here's some more resources. You know, don't be afraid to give people more resources because a lot of times what I found is people are hungry for that information. And if they're not getting it from you, they're going to find it from someone else. And unfortunately there's a lot of yahoos on the internet <laughs> telling people all kinds of crazy stuff. And you know, people will, will turn to that. So I know as, as a conventional provider, time is, is a limiting factor. I was there, I worked outpatient for two years and how I built it when I worked outpatient was I spent the time one weekend and typed up a whole bunch of documents, probably like 40 or 50 pages of stuff that I could just give people and say, here, let's talk about this again, when you come back in, in three months or one month or, or whatever it is. But I took the time to read the clinical studies in my spare time. I've got a database of over 600 clinical studies that I've read in the last two years. And then uh, I put in the time to make the documents that I could give to people when I knew I didn't have time to talk to them in the office. Yeah, that's good. Um, one thing that always surprises me, I think is, and I probably part of the problem with the whole situation is I feel like I know, at least in my experience in farm school, I mean, the amount of time we spent on like nutrition counseling was like almost other than like making it's like uh, dash diet. Yeah. And, it's um, like, here's a dash diet. Here's a handout. <laughs> you know, here's a salt limitation kind of thing. It was like almost nothing. And, I, and you know, I had to learn a lot of the, uh, cause I do a lot of diabetes education cold does as well. And so one of the, I had to learn a lot of that stuff after the fact. And one of the things that always surprises me is I feel like you just the school's lack of attention on that is interesting. I mean, I had a student the other day I was working with told a um, had had a patient in the room with has diabetes and basically uh, his, it was a Hispanic lady told her she could never have um, tortillas again because there's carbs in it. I was like, oh wow. my geez, someone's getting to talking to. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's I'm like, first of all, that's not true. Second of all, like that's you got to take into account culture and all that stuff. I'm like, you got to tell that's like. That's like telling a guy from the South, you know, like telling me I can't have rice ever again with my, with my, my chicken or something. That's not going to happen. <laughs> of course I'm going to eat that. So like adapting like that knowledge into, like you're saying, like the actual pharmacotherapy piece of it, I feel like it's something that's almost never talked about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, again, it goes back to that, you know, we're very black and white. So it's, it's this is either good or this is bad. And so a lot of people put a lot of pressure on themselves to be perfect. And if they slip up, then if they fall apart, like, oh, I can't do this. It's too hard. No, you know, I tell people have like a cheat meal once every four to seven days, depending on how active you are. It keeps us human. It keeps us normal. And it makes sure that even if we're in a calorie deficit, that we're not in a deficit for too long. 
you know, cause you'll see that people are like, Oh, I'm starving myself. Why isn't that a thing happening? It's because your hormones are all messed up. You can't starve yourself. You need food. Right. So it's, it's a balancing act. You know what my entire program and, and what I've kind of settled on, on holistic medicine is it's about balance, right? Cause you want your immune system balanced. You want your, your cholesterol system balanced. You want your blood sugars balanced. Right. Because everything that happens in the body, if it's too low, that's a problem. If it's too high, that's a problem. You want everything balanced. And so finding that balance means, you know, you can't tell people never eat something again. Yes, you can eat tortillas. Just don't eat tortillas with every single meal or maybe not every single day. Maybe space it out to where you're doing that every four days, something like that. Right. And then focus on these other foods first. Right. And then when you've done well for a couple of days, then reward yourself with a, with a meal that you like, but then go just one, you know, don't go off the rails all day and then come back. So it's, it's really is about balance. And we need to teach people that they need to talk to their patients and their clients and things like that and tell them, Hey, it's intention, not perfection. Here's where I want you to stay. Here's the sandbox. If you stray outside the sandbox, that's okay. That's normal but just come back to where you're supposed to be inside the sandbox. One thing, you know, I've noticed too, is if you're talking to like a drug rep or just someone about like a certain medication, the example I always think of is like Trulicity or one of the other GLP ones. Um, you know, if you look at the clinical trial data, it'll say, oh, you know, it dropped A1C by, you know, one, 1.5% in the A1C. And, uh, a lot of people will kind of say, okay, well, you know, if the person's A1C is a 13, then, you know, obviously we're going to need more than just a GLP-1. We're going to need this. We're going to need that. And the thing I always kind of bring up is, okay, those trials aren't taking into account, like, the diet and lifestyle portion. Because I know, like, in our, like, program, our diabetes education program, you know, I've had patients go from a 13 or a 14 after meeting with me for the pharmacotherapy part and then the dietitian for the lifestyle part. And then I kind of try to echo a lot of the stuff she brings up. Uh, we've had people go from a 13, 14% in their A1C down to, like, a 7 or 8 in a matter of, like, 4 or 5 months. And I'm like, that's not 1.5%. So I'm like, those trials are looking at just the medication. They're not doing anything to do with the diet or lifestyle. So I always hate that. I've heard several people ask like students that question of like, well, how much of an A1C can we expect to see drop in a, in a patient? I'm like, that's irrelevant. I mean, that's not even a good question as far as I'm concerned. Cause it completely mm-hmm. how you set them up and engage them in their own care and uh, healthy lifestyle overall, you give all the medication right. in the world, but their sugar is going to stay high if they're eating, you know, Captain Crunch 24-7. I like Captain Crunch. It hurts the top of your mouth, though. That's a good point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, uh, I always tell people that we look at studies a little bit too much like they're gospel, like they're set in stone. Like this study is not like that. Again, it's not black or white. So, yes, you know, metformin, you can get, you know, up to a two reduction or 1.5, you know, reduction in A1C. Right. But if I combine metformin with meditation, with diet, with exercise, with um, stress management, you're going to see a lot more of a difference. Right. And that's what the real world is like in the real world. You know, if I'm let's say I'm starting a business, it's not like I put my website up and say, "Okay, guys, I'm done. I'm just going to wait till the money comes rolling in. Yeah. No, there's multiple other things I do surrounding that business. And it should be the same thing with health. You know, yes, clinical trials are important. Yes, we need to know if medication has a difference than placebo. 
but we also need to look at how is the medication doing in a real world scenario with all these other things around them. And one of the unfortunate things that gets lost in this area of polypharmacy is how the medication is interacting with other medications. One, because I've seen that all the time where people were on medications to treat side effects of other medications when you stop the medications and they get better. Yeah, that's one of the things I did all the time when I was a conventional doc, when people came to me, I'm like, well, why are you taking this? I don't know. Why are you taking this? I don't know. Mm. Well, let's stop these and let's <laughs> see if that gets rid of your away. problem. Because, right. Because <laughs> the symptoms you're having sound like side effects of this drug, right? So that's, that's one thing. And then the other is that a lot of practitioners, because they don't have the, the pharmacology background, they don't know that a lot of medications can cause serious nutrient deficiencies. You know, even metformin, a drug I love because, you know, there's no long-term side effects. People live longer when they take it and they, you get less cancer with it, but they don't know that metformin can cause B vitamin deficiencies and folate deficiencies, right? Birth control. You know, I classically saw a lot of young girls on birth control get depressed. Again, <coughs> B vitamin deficiency, right? So you put them on a multivitamin, take them off the antidepressant and they got better. You know, so there, there are lots of medications out there that can cause these type of interactions where we put on another medication to fix that side effect when really they could just use some nutrient therapy or something like that. And that could help. So that's why it's like we talked about earlier, we need that collaborative approach. You know, we need pharmacists, we need PTs, we need OTs, we need MDs. We need DOs. We need all of everybody together on the same page, looking at a comprehensive picture of health because it's really, really complicated. Yeah. I, I saw just probably a week or two ago, a patient that was on super high doses of gabapentin for quote unquote diabetic neuropathy. And, but she was also taking metformin, uh, you know, two grams a day. And then was also on a PPI that she'd been on long-term. And so I'm, I'm like, well, her, her B12 has got to be low at this point, which then can mimic, you know, the neuropathy symptoms. So she ended up giving her, I gave her a B12 supplement and like within a month, um, she was off the gabapentin and her legs were fine. She wasn't having any of the burning sensation. And I was like, well, good. Now we can start working on the weight loss part because the gabapentin was keeping the weight on and, and all that. And so she was taking all this gabapentin, mm -hmm. not feeling good. And she she didn't need it in the first place. So that's definitely a good point. To, to, so what's your process kind of, if you have a patient that comes to you specifically for, you know, like the functional medicine and all that, what's your process? Like, how do you start that off? Yeah, sure. So the first thing I do is uh, when people come to me, they want some help. The first thing I have them do is run through the lifestyle medicine course. All right. Because there's two reasons I do that. One is because I want us to be on the same page when we talk. I want you to know everything that goes into that deposit, that safety deposit box that I talked about, right? All those, the lifestyle stuff. And then we talk and walk through where that person is and then we come up with a plan. So I'll usually have people work through one aspect. I call it my five pillar system. It's really six, but we have them work through one of those a month. And then we go through that one by one. Now, for some other people, I'll do some in-depth in, in testing, you know, micronutrient testing, microbiome testing, uh, genetic testing, looking for oxidative stress, you know, because I'm, uh, I'm thinking about it from the seven root causes of chronic disease, right? And so, you know, that could be genetics, that could be nutrient deficiencies, that could be hormones, insulin resistance, 
inflammation, toxins, dysbiosis. You know, so those those really are the root causes of most chronic diseases. And so when someone comes to me, I'm trying to figure out as we're working on the lifestyle stuff, which points do I emphasize about lifestyle that really hits what I think their root cause is? So some people, they don't, I don't get to do any testing at first. I say, let's work on, you know, your nutrition, your exercise, um, your meditation for a couple months. Let's see where you are. And then they'll say, okay, if you're having residual symptoms and let's do testing or some people I say, you know what, this could be, I'm not really sure which thing is the most prevalent. Let's do some testing to find out what the biggest problem is and let's focus on that. But I tend to try to do small changes, just keep layering small changes and start with like one point, which for most people is usually nutrition. That's usually the thing I start with like day one, month one, we're really gonna try and hammer home nutrition because it's the most important thing you do every day as far as your health. What do you put in your body? I say nutrition is the king of wellness, exercise is the queen. So those are usually the first two things I try to work with, um, but it really depends on where people are and what I think is their their major issue. So what are some of the uh, most common like nutrient deficiencies that you see? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so of course, B vitamins, not uncommon these days, uh, magnesium, and that can be because you know we don't eat a lot of the foods that have magnesium in them and also because of soil depletion. Uh, zinc is another common one. I think that's because of inflammation. If you're inflamed, you start to absorb more copper, less zinc. So it, it, it changes that ratio. Iron deficiencies, you know, we see that a lot in, in women. And of course, it, as, as veganism is becoming more popular, I'm not anti-vegan. You know, I have a vegan week where I just go completely vegan, but that's something that you see is, 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 is very common as well. And then, you know, something has been in the news a lot lately because of COVID, which uh, I'm glad it's finally getting some attention is vitamin D. Mm-hmm. You know, 42% of America is vitamin D deficient. It's up to 64% of Latinos and 82% of African-Americans. And vitamin D is a hormone. You know, we made a mistake calling it vitamin D. We should have <laughs> called it hormone D because you say vitamins and people are like, eh, you say hormones and like, what'd you say? <laughs> uh, you have my attention. Right. And vitamin D is responsible for the expression of over 200 different genes. So it regulates so many different things in the body. So that's one of the first things that I'll try to fix if I see someone has a vitamin D deficiency is correct that a lot of people get a a lot of relief of their symptoms if they have low vitamin D and you fix that. If when you're checking, this is kind of random, but when you're checking at someone's vitamin D level, do you typically do like a 25 hydroxy vitamin D level? Or do you ever, is there a reason like a chronic kidney disease where you check like a 125 dihydroxy mm-hmm. or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Do you have a. Yeah. So, um, you're, go ahead. Yeah. You're, so if someone has CKD, I'll check that and PTH. Okay. Right? So if someone has uh, sarcoidosis, which is another condition where you can get upregulated. Uh, 125 vitamin D, I'll check all of them. And then if people, if I'm not sure, you know, if, if I'm really not sure, I'll check the 25. I may not check the 125, but I'll, I'll check a PTH too. Because mm-hmm. if your PTH is at the higher end of normal, then I know that you're vitamin D deficient. Now, some people I'll know that they have a VDR receptor mutation, in which case, then I'll push them towards higher levels of vitamin D. 
right? But for other people, you know, I'll, I'll try to get them in the 30 to 50 range, you know, usually tired, you know, usually I like it around 40 or 50 uh, for most of the people that see me. So, you know, one of the things that you always teach like first year students is like the fat soluble vitamins. So we're thinking like A, D, E, and K. How, how realistic of a worry is that? Like as far as the accumulation of that in the system, how often is that actually become an issue or is that just something that's the textbook answer? So it just gets repeated. Yeah, I, I think it's a textbook answer. I think it was more of a problem when people used to megadose these things back mm. in the day. We really knew that there was a difference between the fat soluble and water soluble vitamins. And I've never seen it. I've I'm trying to think, you know, in the 16 years I've been working in medicine, have ever seen like a vitamin A or D or E overdose. No, I, I can't I can't think of it. And, um, because most people nowadays aren't eating enough good fats, you know, there's some studies that show that the average American 60 to 70% of their calories are carbohydrates. We're actually seeing tons of people. And the cool thing about the fat soluble vitamins is they have the entourage effect. So they all help each other work. So if you're deficient in vitamin D, and this is why a lot of practitioners will say, okay, if you're deficient in one of them, let's use a supplement that has, you know, A, D, and K because they all help each other work. And so that's something I see all the time is deficiencies in these fat soluble vitamins, mainly because people aren't eating enough good fats. Mm, and so what about, um, cause you, you, like when all the COVID stuff going on, vitamin D um, was definitely talked about. And then I think zinc also is another big one they were looking mm -hmm. at. Um, is there anything else? I mean, like how often are you seeing people that have toxicities with like copper and some of those things? Um, is that starting to, are you seeing mm -hmm. that more and more? Or is that something that's still pretty rare? You know, it's not like overt uh, copper toxicity like you'd see with like Wilson's disease mm -hmm. or something like that, but it, it's subclinical, right? And so ideally your zinc and copper ratio should be about one to one, right? Because they compete for absorption. So if everything's okay, then they should be about one to one. But what you'll see is that that, that ratio shifts when you have inflammation to where you have more copper than zinc. And so you have a relative zinc deficiency. And so that can be something that can lead to more inflammation because, you know, zinc is responsible for so many different reactions in the body. It's a cofactor for a lot of uh, different enzymes. It's used by the immune system. You know, there's evidence it blocks viral replication. So it's interesting that you say that because when COVID first started, the first thing I started doing with people was putting them on uh, vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, and melatonin. And there was no data at that time about that. There is some data on these things now, but mechanistically I understood, okay, this is probably an immune hyperreactivity type thing that we're dealing with, you know, because people are getting super sick 14 days later. I'm like, this is not related to the acute infection. This is an immune hyperactivity thing. So I was like, okay, so let me treat these people with stuff that's going to help balance out the immune system, help fight off the infection. And now that's something that a lot of people are like, you know, President Trump, he got melatonin, he got zinc, he mm -hmm. got vitamin D, right? And right. vitamin C. Yep. And then uh, he, that's the, the, the cocktail that I've been giving people is the exact cocktail that he got. So he's got some smart docs around him who understand physiology and understand um, what happens with infections. 
because I, that's exactly what I've been using. Uh, I've seen some good results. I don't have any data, you know, I'm not a data scientist, but uh, the people I've been taking care of have done well on that cocktail. Did, did you put that out on your podcast or anything like that? Like early on when COVID first happened, like the cocktail of vitamins and stuff, did you talk about that at all? It's recorded. I, th- I think I did. I talked about my experience with vitamin D or I mean with uh, COVID. And I think I talked about some of the things that I were using or some of the things that I thought would help. Um, you know, there was a small study that showed that people were who had severe COVID were glutathione deficient. That makes sense. Glutathione is our major antioxidant. Glutathione also tells our immune system to stand down, you know, because our immune system when it gets ramped up is pretty dumb. You know, <laughs> it'll, it'll, it'll go until you shut it off. And then there has to be enough of things like vitamin C, like zinc, like vitamin D to tell the immune system, Hey, we're done here. Like glutathione does that too. So, uh, I did put some of that into a, a, a podcast. I think, uh, I'm going to do one here soon that just talks about vitamin D because it's so critically important. I really want people to understand that this is a hormone deficiency that controls so much of what we do that is affecting a large amount of the population. Yeah. I thought that'd be a cool promo too. If you show like a video of you saying all this stuff, like back in March, 2020, and then fast forward to the data coming out and just be like, yo, I told you guys probably should listen to me more often. <laughs> that'd be yeah, a- it goes back to the pharmacy though. Like we understand physiology, right? So I'm, I, I think about, okay, does this make sense from a physiology perspective? Or what's probably happening here with this high inflammation state that happens to some people in COVID? I'm like, okay, melatonin works on the inflammasome. It's probably going to help decrease that inflammation. Vitamin D helps tune the immune system down when it needs to. And so I was like, okay, that'll probably help. Vitamin C is an antioxidant. You know, there's vitamin C also helps our body make cytokines. balance, right? Vitamin C in certain aspects helps our immune system ramp up In other aspects, it helps it ramp down. But that's what a lot of these things do. They're, they're balancing agents to make sure that we stay where we're supposed to stay. And uh, it's just really cool that I'm hoping that a lot of people will get the same cocktail in the hospitals now that, that President Trump got with the, the nutrient therapy because physiologically it makes a lot of sense. And now there's small studies coming out that support that. There was another study recently that showed that people with severe COVID infection had low zinc levels. You know, this is something that we knew probably from the beginning and why we used it. Cause there's other data that shows zinc helps with respiratory infections. Zinc helps block viral replication, you know? So uh, it's, it's really cool that we're seeing a lot of forward thinking docs come out and put evidence out there that's getting put into clinical practice almost immediately. Like I've never seen anything like that yeah. in the years I've been working in medicine where you can have a study come out days ago and it's already in practice around the country for COVID very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Usually there's definitely a lag time, but I guess the uh, publicity is getting out there quickly. So speaking of your podcast, tell us a little bit, um, tell us a little bit about it. So you're working a couple of jobs. This is before you've done your podcast. You're a, um, 
you're a doctor cyst or a farm doctor, <laughs> one, one or the other. Um, and you decide, Hey, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make this podcast. I know when me and Mike decided to do this, we were like, nobody's going to want to listen to two silly pharmacists, <laughs> you know, talking for an hour or whatever. Um, so what prompted you to do it and who is it mostly geared towards patients or clinicians? Yeah. So I, I started it because I kept getting the same questions over and over again. And I was looking for a medium to kind of put answers out there. And I, I'm a writer, like I've written two curricula and I'm working on a book, but I hate writing. So I was like, I can't do something, you know, every single week that I don't really enjoy. So uh, a friend of mine runs a podcast group here in Houston so I kind of asked him about podcasting and had me coach me through a few points. And then I said, you know what, I'm going to try it, see what happens. And my first couple of episodes, the audio is terrible. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Like, it's just really, really bad. And then over time, like I really fell in love with it as a medium for connecting with people as a way of getting uh, your message and your personality out there. And then I geared it towards people really as a way to create informed health consumers. So people are making decisions about their health without the knowledge. I'm like, how can you make an empowered decision about your health if you don't have the requisite knowledge to do so? And so that's what the podcast is about. It's not saying that I have all the answers or this is the right way. It's saying here, I wanted you to open your mind and think about health from a perspective that you may not have heard before and take that and then use it, don't use it, whatever, you know, that's, it's free information, but really, if you can just think about what is healthy and what's not healthy in a different light, then I've done my job. You know, if you're, if you're second guessing eating, you know, McDonald's for the third time that week, you know, if you think that you want to get on uh, at the gym a little bit more or start meditating, that's really why I started it. And it's just to help people see how all these holistic principles interact with health. Nice. So it's geared, is it geared more towards the patient or can you think the healthcare professionals also can learn from it? Both, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're completely new to, um, to functional medicine or lifestyle medicine, you want to take a look at, you can definitely learn from it as a healthcare provider, because I do use medical terms. I break them down. I wanted to be in a way that everyone could understand in a way that everyone could get exposed to some of these principles of lifestyle medicine and functional medicine. Uh, so really whoever wants to listen, listen, but don't add me if you don't like what's on the podcast. <laughs> That's all. Have you had to deal with the, uh, any mean comments or, uh, people hating on it in the, in the comments or rating section? No, not there yet. Um, oh. It's been from a couple of practitioners I know who are like, what are, you, what are you talking about? This doesn't make any sense. There's no data behind this. And I was like, okay, you know, I have that 500 study database that I talked about, right? So boom, here's study, here's a study, here's a study, you know, because it is research-based. I'm, I like, I love holistic medicine because there's a lot of casts. I'm not just pulling out of the air. You know, I've, I've done research on it. I have studies that can back up what we're saying. And if you want the studies, I can send them to you. So it is a lifestyle. It is a, a holistic wellness podcast, but there is research behind what I'm saying. Have you um, thought about putting together like 
either on like on your website or something like that, a section where it'll have like each supplement, like let's say zinc and then like have like links sir, to the like PubMed, you know, where that studies that you've looked at have, can kind of show some benefits so people can find it like a database like that. Yeah. So actually in my Facebook group, I have a link to my, the, my clinical trial database. So if people join my Facebook group, it's called strive for great health because uh, I'm not hiding anything. Mm -hmm. You know, I want everyone to have access to these same studies, make their own interpretation. You know, that's what we're taught in medical and pharmacy school. Don't just believe what I'm saying, go out there and look at the data yourself. And so I make that available to everyone. That's awesome. So, you know, where, where can people find your podcast? iTunes, where, where can they go? Yeah, so it's available on all major platforms, iTunes, Spotify, you know, whatever stitch you use, Amazon. I know Amazon now has the podcast. Um, my website's the ghwellness.com, and I have a YouTube channel, uh, Dr. Richard Harris, MD, and I post quick five-minute videos on the YouTube channel where it's, I do something called wellness journeys, where we talk about, you know, different aspects of wellness. It's more of the mindset portion of wellness. I do quick five minute study reviews of new studies. And then I have something called supplement Saturday, where I just talk about, you know, five minute take on some uh, supplement to give people more information. And then my Instagram and Twitter, I'm very active on there. And that's uh, DR Harris MD. Nice. That's awesome. We'll definitely, we'll, we'll share the, the links and stuff in the show notes as well. So people can find you. So um, anything else as far as like big topics that you want to make sure people are at least aware of anything on the horizon for you that you're interested in research wise, anything like that? Yeah, I think it's really interesting time period because I've seen so many holistic studies come out, you know, about nutrient therapy, um, during this time period. So I think you're going to see a big push in that area. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Um, I'm really excited about a couple of, of the ventures that I'm involved with. One of them is called routine. I'm a clinical advisor for them. Routine does the market testing and the genetic testing, and they just do it for way cheaper than I could on my own. So getting that personalized nutrition, uh, personalized supplementation to people, that's going to be a, a game changer because it's going to increase adherence rates, right? If I'm saying, look, your genes and your blood work says, this is what the data said. Well, you know, combining your genes, your blood work, and what the data says based upon those genes, this is literally a customized plan for you. So I, I think that's going to be a much higher adherence rate to certain protocols. I'm really excited to work with them. It's got me super Super excited because, like I said, I love the supplements and I know that they can help, especially if you're doing it in a targeted approach. And what about uh, like as far as the regulation goes and like the third party testing, things like that? Do you have like certain brands that you recommend or certain companies that you go with when you're providing patients with some of these supplements? Yeah. So, um, I actually, I have an e-store and in my e-store, I carry all, you know, the CGMP type brands, uh, pure encapsulations, orthomolecular, new medica, you know, those are some of the most popular types of brands there. Are, you know, what I tell people about supplements is I don't really care if you get your supplements from me because everything that I do, I didn't want there to be an agency problem. Meaning am I ordering a test because the test is good for me? Or is it good for you? 
So I removed a lot of that. And so the supplements I massively discount, I make like a couple bucks off of each one, you know, so I don't, I'm not out there really trying to push and sell them. I'm only offering them because I think they may actually help. And, but if you're not getting your supplements from, you know, one of these places or a pharmacy, always, always, always make sure that they say CGMP, NSF, you know, FDA inspected. These are types of things that you can make sure that you're getting high quality supplements. One of the things I always tell people is if you're getting cheap supplements, all you're doing is making expensive pee and poop. <laughs> that's a good one. I like that. Cole, you got anything else, man? No, man. I think that's all I got. Richard, any closing remarks? Anything you want to tell anybody listening? Yeah. So um, two of my favorite quotes, one by William James says our, our best defense against stress. And I'm paraphrasing is our ability to choose one thought over another. And that's just how powerful your mindset is. You know, we can't change the stimulus that happens to us a lot of times, but you are always hundred percent in control of your response. That space between stimulus and response is your space for growth. And another is that if you don't make time for wellness, you'll be forced to make time for illness. So which would you rather make time for? I'd rather make time for wellness. <laughs> for sure. Well, Richard, man, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, taking the time. I know it's Friday afternoon when we're recording this, so <laughs> we're being nerds instead of going and enjoying our Friday. <laughs> so that's awesome. Um, thanks, for, thanks for taking the time. And um, we'll make sure we put all your uh, your Instagram handle and web website and all that stuff in the show notes as well so people can find you. But um, thank you guys for listening. Um, thank you guys so much for listening and supporting the podcast. Uh, if you have any questions for Cole and I, our emails will be in the show notes below as well. You can follow us on any of the social media platforms forms um and if you want to text us directly the you can text 415-943-6116 and uh, we'll get back to you as soon as we can on any of those messaging systems but thank you guys so much for uh, listening and the support and we will see you next time later